So this evening I'd like to speak about equanimity because this is a one very important quality that can accompany metta and I'd like to explain and describe why it is so important and uh, in the way of deepening our metta practice. So first I'd like to talk about all the four Brahma Viharas and encase it uh, this practice of equanimity and metta in the four Brahma Viharas. I described earlier in the retreat that there are these two words which um, describe these, these four qualities of metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And they're called the Brahma Viharas. Brahma means high or divine, and vihara means an abiding place. So these abiding places are not someplace else, like an, on another planet or another um, realm of existence. They can be, uh, these viharas, but the ones that we're talking about as part of qualities of our hearts and minds, they exist and abide within our own hearts. So all four of these are known as boundless states, boundless states, because the fullness of their true nature, in their fullness, they are not limited to any particular range of beings, because it's said that the range of beings that exist in this um, level of existence that we live in, it's boundless. Uh, So when we offer... That always affected me a lot whenever my teachers would say that to to me because I realized that what the world I live in is so small compared to what apparently the range of existence is. And like Manindra says, you you may not believe it, but it's true. (laughs) He always used to look out in in the skies at night and be so totally um, just... Uh, in a different world, you know, looking at the skies at night beyond, beyond, beyond. So the aim of the practice of these Brahmaviharas have a twofold effect. One is that it makes these qualities, when we actually practice them, it makes these qualities sink deep into our hearts. They make new habit patterns for us in that way so that they become spontaneous to us, natural, spontaneous. And they're not easily overthrown when they're part of our practice and they become new habit patterns for us. It's also said that they achieve stronger states of mental concentration. We can actually do concentration practices with these Brahma-viharas. We're not uh, doing concentration practice here in relationship to them there is some level of concentration but we can actually take one of them like metta and do a concentration practice just with repeating those metta phrases that develop deep deep what they call jhanic states where we we can feel uh, blissful uh, states of mind that we may not feel in our everyday lives. We probably don't. 
And some people actually experience them on retreat when they do even this kind of practice. There's called uh, metta kusala, which we're doing. That's metta for a good heart, a good mind. And there's metta jhana. Metta jhana means for concentration practice. So these practices, all of these, uh, when we train our minds in these, we're able to respond to life with more clarity, with more um, a confidence in ourselves, a strength in our voice in the world. It helps us to um, open to deep wisdom factors that help us to use those as we uh, navigate our, our way through our lives. And yet, with a kind of kindness, a kind of kindness that's so needed in each one of our lives today and, of course, in the world. So as we have um, reflected many times, these training repat- this training repatterns our uh, life force. It repatterns our thinking process so that the habitual un- unwholesome patterns weaken and the wholesome patterns gain strength. They're more accessible to us. So all these four Brahma-viharas are such important retrainings of the mind. Through the years, I've noticed that in order to face the, the shadows of my heart and mind, those unconscious, unwholesome habit patterns with my heart and mind, I really needed to be willing to be aware of them. That's why the Vipassana practice is so important, to first become aware of how habitually it is and how deep those patterns really are. Because then when, when we see how deep and sometimes intractable they are, we, we really want to train, retrain the mind. We really want to weaken those patterns and um, be able to have something more accessible to us that's really useful. So um, I, I'm sorry that I forget the, the um, author of this quotation, but it was about enlightenment isn't seeing um, you know, spheres of light, but it's making the darkness known, making the darkness known. So this is what's happening even in our metta practice. There has to be a certain amount of awareness there in order to know what's there so that we can incline the mind to something else. When we see something that's unwholesome, the correct thing to do according to the Buddhist training and teachings is to, um, to let that go, to let them go, that go into the impermanence and to incline the mind to something wholesome, to something useful, to something beneficial. To intentionally bring forth the wholesome states of mind. So I'd like to read something from um, the great Nyanaponika Tara. Uh, some, uh, I think Mark read from Nyanaponika Tara's writings earlier. And this is from his writing, The Vision of Dhamma. Um, these four Brahma-viharas provide, in fact, the answer to all situations arising from social contact. 
They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human goodness against the forces of egotism. And we can see just it, it, it just takes kind of, um, you know, basic understanding to see that this is true, these basic four qualities of life called the Brahma Viharas. One of my teachers long ago, I had the good fortune of having some retreats with her before she passed away, is Aya Kema, great German nun. And um, I really attuned her because she became a nun after she raised her, her child, and then she went into the nunhood. And she had told me, and I um, have read also her inner writings, quoting Aya Kema, if these were on, the only emotions we had and mindfulness, it's all we would need to live in this world. So that was her belief. So um, equanimity has metta as its basis. So that's why in this particular tradition we start with metta and then we, we see that when metta turns to suffering, the aspect of compassion comes out of that. And this is to overcome cruelty. When metta turns to uh, sympathetic joy, the uh, turns to joy, the aspect of sympathetic joy <coughs> comes out of that. That means um, in, instead of feeling jealous or envious, we can have joy for the person who is feeling joy. So it's said that metta makes all of these Brahma-viharas um, metta and equanimity together make all of these Brahma-viharas much more powerful. One of the reasons why equanimity makes it more powerful it's, is because of its non-reactivity. The basic way that uh, equanimity works is to be non-reactive to whatever's happening. So that means when there's non-reactivity, there's an absence of any kind of aversion, an absence of any kind of attachment in those two areas. And there's a clear awareness at the same time. So there's absence of delusion. So equanimity is very, very powerful in that regard. When equanimity and metta are together, um, those two can arise together. Metta can be infused with equanimity. Equanimity can be infused with metta. Those two together are such powerful um, helpers to one another that cruelty cannot come up, that envy cannot come up because of the power of these two qualities. So it's um, when I looked this up in the Abhidhamma, equanimity, talks about the chief characteristic of equanimity, meaning being even-mindedness. So that's when we, t we see that word equanimity and we think, oh, this is about balance. This is about balance. But it's a lot more than balance. 
It's a balance with no reactivity connected with that. So somewhere I heard this phrase that really I tuned into, resting the mind before it falls into extremes. Instead of going in one on the one side, which is attachment, or swinging to the other side, which is aversion, it stays right in the middle. You know, the middle is that aware, equanimous, kind mind that can actually see both sides, but it isn't kind of living on either side. It can recognize them. Maybe they can pass through, but we don't have to live there. And maybe if we feel a bit of it and we bring equanimity into play, then the mind goes back. Like I, I like what how... Um, the Buddha used to always say, the middle path, the middle path, come to the middle path. So this resting the mind before it falls into extremes has this kind of subjective experience. Sometimes we'll be in a place like even here where you're practicing metta with awareness and we'll, we'll start to see something that, you know, maybe it strikes the eye or strikes just our how we feel about that as like we don't like that but with equanimity we'll kind of and kindness we kind of see that coming up and it it just won't go there it just sees oh we see some unkindness comes up and we come back and rest in the middle of things we might see both you know the sides of we don't like it we want it to be another way that's both aversion and attachment. And then we can we see that clearly and we come back to the middle so that we're we're not getting lost in either side. So those are the extremes. So it has this subjective experience of that resting the mind before it falls into extremes. It also has the subjective experience of an inner spaciousness. That means that it feels like the mind is so big inside that it can see what's happening, but it doesn't get identified with it. It doesn't get attached to it, so to say. It just kind of sees it come, it waits a while, and sees it go. And then we take action. You know, we might, we might see it there, but we have enough wherewithal not to get identified with it so that it can come and go. So equanimity doesn't necessarily mean that the mind is all real cool, cooled out all the time. We can see what's going on, but we can renounce in a way. We can experience that renunciation of not going there. So it doesn't mean that it doesn't come up at all. It just means that there's some wisdom, some space to choose it. The mind is very big. It says... Um, about this spaciousness, it can hold whatever comes and goes. It doesn't hang on to anything. So we might not feel equanimous in the moment, but if, if you can watch the whole pattern, these things just come and go. And then the mind is resting and actually just seeing the impermanence of whatever comes and goes into that spacious field. So I hope you, I hope you get the sense of that. You know, it's not just sometimes we hear this word balance and it seems like we're just kind of teeter-tottering on this, you know, very 
razor's edge. And if we just go this way a little bit, we're going to get lost or hurt ourselves. Or that way a little bit, lost and hurt ourselves. But it's a very wide stance. So some of you probably have learned, um, I guess this comes from John Kabat-Zinn. It's like a mountain. You know, equanimity is even described in some of the scriptures as a mountain that really uh, is very has a very strong base and does not react to whatever happens to it. Of course, like in our lives as human beings, we have to respond. We have to get out of danger. We have to, you know, maybe sometimes kind of protect ourselves physically. But we're not kind of having this hateful or vengeful reactivity within. We do it out of, do things out of necessity like that, of course. But it doesn't mean that we just say, okay, I'm very equanimous, just go ahead, step on me. You know, it's not like that at all. We, we stand up for ourselves. So it's this even-minded loyalty, but it has a lot of wisdom. It, it can... Um, it can't access wisdom as to what to do in this matter. So it says about love that um, it gives love an even-minded loyalty through the ups and downs of life. So those of you who have been with a long relationship, you know how true that can be. You know, yeah, we have our, speaking for myself, you know, I have my own faults and things that... um, others can react to, and I can react to myself that way too, not liking the parts that aren't so nice uh, about how I am sometimes. But uh, I still know some ways that I can navigate certain terrain and I can take a breath, let things go, and begin again. And we have that loyalty to seeing the ups and downs of life come and go, without getting so identified with any one thing and know that some things, life is how it is, you know. Why do these happen? Because we're human, you know. We're, we're going to experience these twists and turns, as Mark says, these ups and downs. So equanimity actually recognizes the wrong or unwholesome activity, but does not get wiped out about it. And, and it also allows one to, to see that in another, the wrong or unwholesome activity, but does not lose sight of that person's goodness or that person's potential for goodness. It remains there somehow. It doesn't, just because somebody does something wrong or you can see that's really unwholesome, we don't say that person is forever bad or that person's completely that way. We just see, yeah. This is how it is sometimes. Basically, that's one of the sayings that come with equanimity. This is how it is sometimes. So in order to intentionally bring forth equanimity, sometimes in my metta practice, I have to add a phrase, add an equanimity phrase to that. Because, for example, when I was raising my grown children, their grown children, their they're my grown children now, but when they were teenagers, I would use um, the phrase this way, say, say, for example, may you be happy, 
may you be peaceful. And granted, sometimes I would just say, may you please be peaceful? You know, <laughs> there would be that, mm, that wanting in there. But really, I would know that it's not that way all the time. So the phrase that I would add to it is, and this is how it is sometimes. So that, you know, I'm just giving that a wide life, a wide birth to be life. So I like this sense of equanimity, not meaning just balance, but meaning uh, spaciousness, to have a spacious heart to understand the whole situation or the twists and turns of life and that this happens to everyone. So um, I would add that. Now, there is a traditional equanimity phrase and I I want to say that one to you and, and to let you know the way that helped me to translate that into something else. This is um this can be very uh striking sometimes and hard to understand. Sometimes we we don't understand cause and effect or karma that much. The phrase the equanimity phrase goes all beings are owners of their actions or their karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions or their karma and not upon my wishes. So that's why equanimity is really necessary in terms of saying these phrases, because we might have some attachment to their result. That's why metta has to be completely unconditional love, and and we give an unconditional well-wishing. Even though we know it may not come true, we unconditionally feel and sense and want to offer um, peace, goodwill for them. And we we may say that even though in many cases it may not be true at all, it may not come true at all. So this thing about um, actions, uh, they depend on what, what that person's karma and actions and intentions are, not upon my own wishes. So every time I would use those kinds of uh, phrases to my children or for my children, instead of um, using this long phrase, I would say, you have your own journey. All beings have their own journey. And it would just help me loosen the grip on needing to control their journey or needing to wish so tightly that their journey be absolutely perfect and full of happiness that um, then I'll be happy. But knowing that things change and uh, this is life, you know, things have twists and turns and they have their own journey. I would say, for example, to (laughs) the eldest one was the one that had um, the most um, strong mind of her own <laughs> let's say it nicely <laughs> um, uh, I would say please don't go down that road with what you're doing now please, please it's, it's just going to hurt you to keep going down that path and uh, she would say okay, I know mom you know, because she was a teenager and she knew everything so 
then um, in my mind I would say, no matter how much I say that, with all the care in my heart, that I'm, you know, I'll, I'll support her, I love her, I care for her, she's still going to take that path, and she still did sometimes. And um, I, I would say, like, for example, don't go down that river because there's a waterfall close by and you're going to die or get really hurt. But, you know, just metaphorically speaking, she'd still go down that river. And, um, you know, she'd somehow save herself. But my, <laughs> my phrase would be, um, okay, all beings have their own journey. And I would surrender to that. It, it just helped me be able to give those well wishes without attachment to result. That's, that's what the equanimity phrase can help us with, with less, a lessened or no attachment to result. So this is a, a very important part of the equanimity as we do the practice for ourselves, and, and also we do it for others, of course. So that's about the practice of equanimity, and I'd like to talk about now, um, in a general way, more about equanimity, just like I did with the compassion. Um, how is it? How is that relationship to life in general? This quality of equanimity, and I like to think of it as seeing the world with quiet eyes. Um, it's, it's just seeing the world with, you know, that kind of... You know how sometimes we see things on the news and my eyes go, ooh, I don't want to see that or hear that. You know, it's, it, it affects me in, in such a reactive way, actually. But I'm learning more and more to see things with quiet eyes, meaning what's inside is more quiet. And it is. It isn't with you know closing my eyes or having those um, in in Hawaii. When we look at somebody meanly, we call it stink eye, you know. <laughs> and so I'm not looking at the world with stink eye. Mm-hmm. I got that from this um, beautiful writing by the late Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman. He was the uh, pastor of the Church of Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco that was co-founded in 1944. He was actually a counselor to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and really helped him during during his difficult times in life. So this meditation, uh, he called it a meditation, was entitled, Deep is the Hunger. And in the collection of his writings, uh, this is one, about two sentences that he had that stood out to me. How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes and joys, cruelty, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. So this is what he called seeing the world with quiet eyes. 
that's a subjective feeling that we might have with equanimity, with that quality of equanimity in our hearts. Other subjective experiences would be like being calm inside. You know, no matter what we see, we could get excited about it and, yeah, we might have a moment of, ooh, you know, just that's hard to hear about whatever's happening in these various places on the earth. But we come to some calm eventually, come to some quiet. And it can feel really spacious in there, not just calm, quiet, but spacious so that it's spacious because sometimes for me it feels like, okay, my heart can hold this. It's not like it has to be, I can't even look at it or feel it. It's like, okay, my heart can hold this about what's happening in the world, what's happening in places that we're close to in the world, um, our children, community. Yeah, a lot of experiences come up to me right now how it is. So when we can do that with a, a spacious, calm mind, there's more chance for a feeling of um, being unbiased to not not going to extremes, to feel the mind can... It might go there for a bit, but it comes back to the center. It might go to the other side, but it comes back to some calm, clear space. So I don't want to give the impression that we're going to feel completely calm and completely non-reactive. We're going to see it go in and out, but we'll have some kind of trust that it'll come back to a place of calm. It'll come back to a place of clarity, and then we can know how to respond from there. So I guess by now, you know, most of you being meditators for quite some time, and even a few years is quite some time, uh, when you, you can actually sense attachment or aversion in your own heart when it's present. But you can also sense when it's not there or when it's weakened. And so that's what we're learning deep in our practice here. We're learning to be um, brave enough to be with what comes up, to bring awareness there and or a kindness or metta there, and then to see how things can calm down simply because of awareness and an added measure because of metta and equanimity. And then we can be more present to what's and clear to what's actually happening. Then we can respond. But oftentimes we just see something, speaking for myself, and it's much better now I mean, than it was before. But I can see that I can wait a little bit. I can say, just wait. Or I don't have to say it. I just kind of know. Just wait a bit. And then respond a few seconds later. Or maybe it's a day later, you know, till I settle down and can see some more clarity about what's going on. So then it allows us to act or to speak more powerfully in a skillful and beneficial way. We have time to gather the facts, to gather what we feel, to gather what 
some of um, others may sense, feel, know, and be able to put that all in an order and in a way that people can understand and with a voice that isn't attacking so that, um, you know, there's action on, on their part. Sometimes we have to speak loudly and repeatedly in order for people to really get it, but that doesn't mean um, we have to do it with anger or ill will. So, for this reason, equanimity is such an important subject to reflect upon in our lives. We live in a time when there are so many views and opinions and the speed of information is so fast that we're getting so much of it too. So we're bombarded and um, we really have to take some time to be away from that. In, In times like this, it really gives us a time to settle down and see who are we really inside here, you know? apart from our reactivity to what's going on, other people's opinions and the news that happens so um, in such big ways every day. So this reactivity is the opposite of equanimity. And we, when we don't um, wait for that reactivity to die down, we add disharmony to the world. We add hurt to the world. We also add hurt and um, to our own karmic field. So it's this uh, equanimity is such an important quality. We have this um, great opportunity to live in this relative simplicity here where we can be with nature, we can feel our feet on the earth, underneath us and see the heavens above at night when there's no clouds here. And we connect with that, the nature inside when we're connected with the nature outside. So there's so much that's supporting us in our practice here. So many good conditions that it's really wonderful when we keep our commitment and, and you know, refrain from kind of seeing what's going on out in the world there so that we can really see who we are. Who are we without all of that? So we're able to feel a kind of safety within us when we have that kind of refuge outside, feel the refuge inside, and we trust ourselves. I notice that for myself, that I can trust myself more when I know who I am, what makes up this body-mind continuum, which is called Kamala. And I'm not spun out by everything in the world. So I'd like to read something from uh, Thomas Merton, who was an American Trappist monk in the Catholic tradition. And by the way, I said something about my Catholic tradition uh, earlier in the retreat, and I want to add to it to kind of... um, Uh, give you the wholeness of the situation. I came to the the, uh, Dharma because of of a lot of suffering in my life, like probably 90% of us have, (laughs) uh, if we 
really look closely, which we have probably. And um, I still have a great reverence for the tradition that I was raised in, the Catholic tradition. Um, so I'm, I'm not against that at all. I just wanted to add something more to it. Um, there's some things I felt that weren't exactly in connection with my my truest hope for liberation in my life, so I found the Dharma. But I still have a lot of reverence for my the tradition I was raised in. So this is from Thomas Merton when he was at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. Many of you may know that uh, he was a social activist and a student of comparative religion. He was very interested in the Dharma. In fact, he died in Sri Lanka at a, um, some kind of a, a, a retreat there. So this verifies what he's, what he's saying, verifies a lot of what we have learned to be true by being in retreat here and other places when we take space from our busy lives. He called this um, courageous rest, courageous rest. Some of us need to discover that we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves by their activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest, doing nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous a person can perform. And he wrote this in the 50s, 1950s, 1960s, and it's maybe even more true today. So with the rush and pressure of life, it's really understandable that we can feel vulnerable, we can feel depressed, there's a lot of anxiety, um, agitation, I mean, Mark and I see that over and over again when, you know, we hear from yogis and we we just know how it is realistically in their lives. The Buddha often spoke of these conditions, these ups and downs, these twists and turns of life that are called the eight vicissitudes of life uh, that we're constantly feeling the flux of in our lives. So it's no wonder that, you know, we feel the way we do in in this day and age now. So many of you know these eight vicissitudes are, and they're the eight worldly conditions, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. We're just going back and forth between these two all the time, and that's one reason why I, I think of the middle way, you know, where... You can be in the middle, equanimity, and you can see both sides, but you don't need to go there. You know, you can decide to choose um, something that's more beneficial, which we're learning how to do by practicing. So, you know, 
this existential vulnerability or existential suffering or dukkha that we feel is because of these eight vicissitudes that we're always flexing between and not really not learning deeply how to just be maybe more, first of all, more kindly toward them and then to recognize that we don't have to actually get subjectified by them. We don't have to kind of live in in that reality. We don't have to identify with them. So the teaching on equanimity is to support not getting bogged down by those vicissitudes, to be able to relax the mind, to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. So there's two levels I want to talk about here in terms of equanimity. It's the external level and the internal level. So in our lives as human beings, these external conditions are constantly triggering thoughts, emotions, mental states, inner attitudes that we're not usually aware of. That's why awareness is so important, because then we can become honestly, soberingly truthful and honest about what's going on. We can see things as they are. That's what vipassana means, to see things as they really are, not to kind of overlay things with how we want them to be or delusionally, you know, covering over them with something else or just trying to run towards something that will feed us in some way uh, and we get attached to. So we start to notice more clearly what's going on here. We notice the external conditions happening and we might they might hurt us somehow or they might trigger something in us, but the first thing we usually do is we react to the external, like, I don't like that or that's bad or we, you know, there's a lot of blame and um, all of that towards the external. That's what we call the first arrow of suffering in the Dharma. And the second arrow of suffering is when we feel the reactivity or that reactivity inside happens of attachment, aversion, or any manifestation of either one of those two. And that is so painful right there. It's, that's the second arrow. And then we react to that. We react to whatever we're feeling with um, self-judgment or I'm not good enough or we even get more angry because we're, we had that moment of anger. And uh, it's just layer after layer after layer when we're not aware. A friend of mine uh, who's also a yogi said that you know, she was always in talking about external conditions and, and this is happening and that's happening. And when um, there was more awareness of what was happening inwardly in regard to the external conditions, she said she was more assaulted by what was going on inside than what was going on outside, that she felt pummeled by her inner experience towards the outer experience. But that was, that was a wonderful awareness um, because when we don't know that, 
when we just were just ignorant or deluded about that, it's just running our lives. Manindra used to say, unless you do um, awareness practice, you're just like a puppet on a string. You know, the one string goes up and it's, oh, just be aversive. And then he's like, you know, or just, you know, just want something that's more pleasant. And then we just run after that. So this awareness and how to respond with awareness is so basic and deeply profound in our training. So with all these unpredictable outer conditions and these deeply set habit patterns coming from within that are always bombarding us, it's no wonder that we feel closed down, that we don't know what to do, we get overwhelmed, we feel numb, disconnected from our own hearts sometimes. So... Yeah, balance, equanimity, that's what it implies, balance. But it's spacious, calm balance. It's having a wide stance and a steady, like you can just be rock steady in life. This quality is often defined as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. But isn't all of life, (laughs) the events already happened, (laughs) They're all, they're really already out of our control because they already happen. I mean, maybe we can do something about them, and that's what we can take take steps to have it better in life somehow. And um, but you know, they'll happen again and again. We have to have this this determination to just keep being consistent. From time immemorial, it's been that way. So sometimes it's worse, sometimes it's better. We can't stop making it, um, doing our best to respond to life. We have to keep doing that. But um, it really takes a lot of determination, a lot of resilience. So this is what the Buddha said about um, equanimity. And this is where the spaciousness comes from. Develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasure, pleasurable and unpleasurable can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is vast like the sky. So that's why it's helpful sometimes when you're, when you're going through something and you feel like it's just a pressure cooker and, you know, the mind is so just kind of attached to what's going on in an in a unbeneficial way. We need to just open the attention and put whatever is being experienced in a bigger space. It can often help our practice, like um, some of you have been saying when you put the the one we're having difficulty with with other beings it it just helps to kind of open that up and it opens the vision up it opens our heart up it can really help so in order to survive we have to have a big enough space to make room for reality this this is how it is this is the reality of how it is I, I think I told somebody today that um when Manindra would come and visit 
um, on Maui, and he'd come and visit because he'd be doing a retreat there. One time he came to um, get better from a from a, a surgery, but and I had some time to be with him for a while. And I would talk about, oh, Manindra, it's like this, it's like that, and look what's happening in the news, and there's so many tourists now, you know, just (laughs) whinging and whining about this and that. And Manindra would say in his beautiful Indian accent, well, what do you expect? This is samsara, you know, like... (laughs) Um, And then, actually, I remember him once saying to a friend of ours in the Dharma who would say things similar (laughs) to my own complaints um, at that time. Um, Oh, maybe you should live on another planet (laughs) 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 because this level of existence, this planet is not like you, you want it to be in some kind of perfection, you know, and I thought, well, that put her in her place. <laughs> I don't think I would ever say that, but um, but he was just being really, really um, truthful. You know, he loved planets. <laughs> yeah. One time, I, um, I and I've heard this from my other friend too, um, who took him to. A, a place where you see all the planets. What, what do you call it when you and observatory. observatory and and then had um, even had films about it and and then there's all kinds of um, uh, things you could see about each planet and he he would just get lost in there. I mean, you you had to wait for a long time for him to get out of there. <laughs> so I love that metaphor of the sky. Um, it's it's it helps me to describe an inner sense of that quality, you know. Can can my heart be as big as as the universe, and that can hold like it's so complex, you know? Like how could I possibly understand all this? And I just have to take one moment at a time to let my heart know what it knows, and to incline the mind towards a place that's more beneficial. Just keeping it simple. So um, this one is from Achan Sumedho. The mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. I love the nothing part. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through us without being caught in reaction or resistance. To me, that's a very honest example of how equanimity works. It, it isn't like, you know, it's just this big, beautiful space where nothing but good stuff arises in the mind. We, we see things come and go, but we don't have to get caught in reaction or resistance to it. Or identify that, okay, just because aversion came into my life for a few hours today doesn't mean that I am aversive. You know, that's how we get identified. Or a thought comes and we think that this thought is me. This is how I am now, so this is how I'm going to be forever. 
That's delusion when we have that kind of a thought. Delusion puts everything in the present moment. It makes it seem like it's going to be like a concrete walkway all the way through, just like that. That's delusion. Delusion, ignorance is not seeing, by the way. And delusion is seeing, but not seeing clearly. So... This um, equanimity allows us to see what's going on, to take the most skillful action or say something, or maybe to wait, not to say anything at all yet. So sometimes we react so fast that we don't take stock of the possibility that we actually don't need to do anything right now. Maybe it's better to wait, to ponder over it, to understand it a little more, to come to the words and have the right inner feeling before we say something about it. Um, I use the, sometimes I say, well, I have to get out the Dharma duct tape now. Like, (laughs) I better not say anything or else I'm going to get in trouble or hurt somebody. So um, it's helpful to notice how things go, you know, in our lives, like when we feel strongly about something that's happening on the outer conditions. Um, Sometimes I would just say to myself, okay, this is how it is for this person right now. Or maybe to repeat, you know, if if I've got everything together, I can repeat, okay, I get it that this is how it is for you right now. And just to wait, not to need to say, this is how it is for me right now. You know, not to get in any kind of argument or just to say, okay, this is how it is for you right now. And then just leave it there for a while until we have a time to say the right thing or do the right thing. I read about this um, somewhere. I read a lot from what His Holiness the Dalai Lama writes and he would call this an inner disarmament. You know, when you're not needing to take your stance or to say something, maybe you can just take a minute to understand and to accept and to acknowledge, okay, this is the way it is for you right now. So that, that phrase is just as important as inwardly saying to myself, and this is the way it is for me right now. Maybe I don't have to say it out loud, but... I know how it is for me right now because, you know, having done some practice, I have some awareness and sometimes I'm not getting it completely right. But, of course, I'm doing better now than I did, you know, a long time ago. (laughs) Um, Sharon would say to me, because I usually try to talk about my own foibles, she would always say, be sure to tell them you're doing better now. So (laughs) I'm remembering that. Otherwise, you know, why are you up there giving the talk? So, So, um, but it's true, some of the things I say, you know, it doesn't last long or it doesn't, like, I'm really not really identified with it, but sometimes, you know, things can last a while. Um, I know better, but... mm, It's hard sometimes. It's just hard. So the far enemy of equanimity is uh, also called the direct opposite, and it's reactivity. 
and and this uh, one uh, far enemy, different from uh, the rest, reactivity is the far enemy, but it has two parts to it. Uh, it's aversion or attachment, any form of aversion or attachment in reactivity to whatever's happening, whether it's outer conditions or inner conditions. So this is what we're learning to see, you know, what's going on here inside. And um, if, it's, if it's beneficial, we can go forth with it. If it's not beneficial, then can we let it ride along into impermanence before we do something? So um, Manindra used to tell me, and um, he would say this to others too, when something that's happening that you don't like, can you in the moment just surrender to it? Because it's what's happening. So he would say, surrender to the law. He would say it about things that were really positive and wholesome, you know, just surrender to the calmness cause some, or to beautiful qualities of mind that are there as well as to the unbeautiful qualities of mind just to surrender to this is how it is right now. That's what how he would use surrender to the law. So when we become familiar with this inner terrain before it takes complete hold of us then we have some wisdom and we can rest the mind before it falls into extremes and then respond in a way that's more appropriate more useful more beneficial the near enemy it's called the near enemy because it seems like um, it seems like equanimity the near enemy is indifference or apathy apathy passivity or complacency you know like you really feel something deep inside but um, it's kind of being held down somehow and you can't really describe it or sometimes we don't even know it's there we want to avoid what we're feeling so we might feel indifferent or apathetic to what's happening but really we might be burning up with anger and we don't want to admit it So this is called the near enemy because it can feel like equanimity. Sometimes uh, people say, I'm using other people's language now, there's not caring. It feels like you don't even care about what's going on. Avoiding, really feel like you're turning away from, being in denial of what's going on inside. Sometimes uh, people use the word emotional emptiness. feels like you, you can't even, don't feel anything there. It just feels empty or you can't describe it. And that's not connecting. That feels like you're not connecting to the reality of what's going on. So maybe the sense of rec- resignation happens, you know, this feeling of helplessness Maybe it's too so big that we feel like we can't possibly face what's going on. And granted, and that's true. So in those times, if we can really know what's going on and name it, it's really helpful because 
When we can't name it, we, we're more confused. But when there is an awareness and we can say, I feel helpless, I feel resigned, or I feel like I don't have a sense of agency, you know, then it's like telling the truth. And when you tell the truth, you feel powerful because you know it's going on inside of you. So equanimity gives us a sense of feeling powerful to respond in life situations in a way that we can bring, maybe we can bring some change. And, and maybe it's, you know, temporary. Maybe temporary means a year or maybe it means a century. But um, that's what we need to do in this world. So equanimity contains three other um, qualities of mind. Equanimity sees clearly. It doesn't have because of the non-reactivity. It cares deeply because of the metta that accompanies it, either metta or compassion, and it can act wisely. So it does not mean at all that you become a doormat to life because people think of the world, word equanimity and think, you know, I don't want to be equanimous. You know, that means I'm not, you know, I'm just equanimous and I'm just sitting there and not doing a thing. But it, it really means we have the clarity to act and to do something about what's going on in life. So how we live our lives and, responds, and respond to things that happen around us and within us, act, that moment actually creates our future. And Manindra would say that in, in time, that future will become, you know, a present moment that we live in. And then when we respond and react to that present moment, then in time that becomes the past. And you'll start to see that you will feel at home uh, remembering the past, being in the present moment, and just even looking forward to the future because you can trust yourselves with the practice. So this is really being responsible in life when we have this quality of equanimity. It has a lot of strengths. It allows for a deeper rest, yet there's clarity in the mind and the heart. It supports mindfulness because it simply mirrors and observes the situation with clarity in an unbiased way. It recognizes this is the way it is right now, and it's not a resignation. It's a clear recognition, not a resignation. So as His Holiness would say, in that state of mind, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason while keeping your own inner happiness. So wouldn't that be a good way to live one's life? So um, I'm just ending this with um, an experience I had with Manindraji during one of the last times I visited him before he passed away. And it was in our, our last day in India, and we were in Varanasi. And um, he very much wanted, through the years, he talked about going down the Ganges River and uh, with 
he wanted me to take a boat ride down the Ganges River. And very directly he said to me he wanted me to see the dead bodies floating on the river. Because, you know, to kind of really see life like this, was, it kind of touches you in such a way that you, you can be open to how life is. You know, birth, death, and all that's in between. So it was before dawn, and it was a very clear, warm morning, and we took a boat down the Ganges, and it uh, went close to the banks of um, one side of the river. So as you know, probably know in Varanasi, they have a lot of burning ghats where they burn the bodies, and then um, at some point, um, if they're not totally cremated, then they go in the river. And so on the right side, there were these burning ghats, and I could see closely, you know, people uh, being there, the family members being there, and um, close enough, and to see the, the body on the pyre of wood that some had begun to burn and some were already burning. And yet on the, on the left side of the boat, there was a horizon and the sun coming up. So there would be the birth of a new day, and then on this side would be death. And it was just like, wow, that, that would take a lot to see, you know, birth. My mind was really opening to all of that, and also understanding I might not see Manindra again. I did get to see him one more time, though, but this time I thought, maybe not. So I had um, a lot of sorrow, in my heart, but a lot of feeling of preciousness of the moment. And um, then that was kind of like the families who were there on the side with the burning gats. But on the other side, there was this beautiful ball of light arising, and I felt the joy of having somebody nearby that I treasured very much, and, and I had friends with me also. A lot of joy, a lot of appreciation um, for life. So there was helplessness on one side, sometimes despair, and on the other side there was appreciation and joy. So a lot going through my heart, just having to take that wide, wide stance. And then there's some, in India, whoever's been in India, you know how it is, it's so beautiful but it's beautiful in its rawness of life. Um, but it also has the beauty of being seeing the truth of how things are all the time, up close. So that was my feeling and sense of um, equanimity, that being with Manindra and learning um, lessons from him, I really treasured that kind of big, big mind that he had. So this is um, just to end with. This is from um, the book of poems of um, The Way It Is from William Stafford. And um, the name of this poem is The Little Ways That Encourage Good Fortune. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. 
You may be heroic, but you will not be wise. If you do have things right, first, did I say that wrong? If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. You may be heroic, but you will not be wise. If you do have things right in your life, but you do not know why, you are just lucky. (laughs) And you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. That last comment is mine. (laughs) So, a lot of our practice is teaching us this and knowing what to choose. And that's how it is. Yeah. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. So we have a, about um, a half an hour now. Let's see, I don't have the... Is that... Oh, yeah, 8.35. 8.35, yeah, about 25 minutes for some walking and then coming back for our last uh, chanting of the evening. So go on ahead, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.